This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello and welcome to the Nursing World Shared Practice Forums. My name is Fiona Paul. I am a nurse practitioner at Boston Children's Hospital and the chair of our Evidence-Based Practice Committee. It is with extreme pleasure that I have the honor of introducing our highly esteemed guest, Dr. Bernadette Melnick. Dr. Melnick is visiting us from The Ohio State University, where she is a VP for Health Promotion, the University Chief Wellness Officer, Professor and Dean of the College of Nursing, and a Professor of Pediatrics and Psychiatry at the College of Medicine. Dr. Melnick is a pediatric and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and an internationally recognized expert in evidence-based practice, intervention research, child and adolescent mental health, and health and wellness. She is a frequent keynote speaker at national and international conferences on these topics. Her remarkable accomplishments include over $19 million of sponsored funding from federal agencies as a principal investigator and over 280 publications. She is the co-editor of four books, including Evidence-Based Practice in Nursing and Healthcare, A Guide to Best Practices, and was the American Journal of Nursing Book of the Year award winner. Dr. Melnick is an elected fellow of the National Academy of Medicine, the American Academy of Nursing, the National Academies of Practice, and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. She served a four-year term in the United States Preventative Service Tax Force and is currently a member of the National Quality Forum's Behavioral Health Steering Committee and the NIH's National Advisory Council for Nursing Research. Dr. Melnick is a boardman of the U.S. Healthiest, the National Guideline Clearinghouse, and the National Quality Measures Clearinghouse. She also serves as the editor of the journal World Views on Evidence-Based Nursing. Dr. Melnick recently founded the National Interprofessional Education Practice Collaborative to advance the Department of Health and Human Services Million Hearts Initiative to prevent one million heart attacks and strokes by the year 2017. She also created and chaired the first two national summits and founded the National Consortium for Building Healthy Academic Communities, a collaborative organization to improve population health in the nation's institution of higher learning for which she has served as its first president. Welcome, Dr. Melnick. Thanks, Fiona. It's great to be here. You have described that the first of a seven-step evidence-based practice process is to, quote, cultivate a spirit of inquiry along with an EBP culture and environment. Would you please share your vision of an evidence-based practice culture and environment and your thoughts on how to build and sustain this? First of all, I have a philosophy, and that is in God we trust, but everybody else better bring data to the table. So when you cultivate this culture and spirit of inquiry, everybody in the organization needs to adopt that philosophy that we are going to be data-driven. Every decision we make is going to be done with good, solid evidence, but at the same time, taking a patient's values or a family's values into consideration and our clinical expertise. We have to remember, culture eats strategy every time. We have to make evidence-based practice the default way to practice and almost make any other type of practice aberrant. 
so that everybody in the organization is constantly questioning what they do, how they do it, and asking, what is the evidence behind every practice decision that we make? So, in God we trust, everybody else better bring data to the table. We need cultures in which our leaders practice in that way, as well as managers, and then the bedside clinician. Cultures that adopt an evidence-based practice framework also invest in it. They have the vision that includes evidence-based practice. They have a mission that includes that. It's embedded in their clinical ladder systems, in performance evaluation. It is in the DNA of the organization. So you need grassroots people spread who believe in this type of practice, who function this way, but you also need your managers and your leaders to role model that and walk the talk. So again, when I talk about culture, it means it's in the DNA of the organization and people use evidence-based practice as the foundation from which they practice, not that it's something they need to be doing on top of everything else that they do. You recently published a landmark study looking at chief nurse officers and their value and implementation and knowledge of evidence-based practice. Could you please expand on that and tell us what the implications of that study findings are? Absolutely. We surveyed 276 chief nurses from across the United States. So we had rep representation from 45 states throughout the country. These chief nurses absolutely believe in the value of evidence-based practice, but their own implementation of evidence-based practice was low. When we also asked them about their top priorities as a chief nurse, it is not surprising they said their number one and number two top priorities were quality and safety, but they ranked evidence-based practice as the bottom of their priorities. Well, we had a big aha moment when we saw that data. It was obvious that although they believe in evidence-based practice, they don't see EBP as a pathway to getting to quality and safety in their hospitals and healthcare systems. 50% of these chief nurses also told us they don't know how to measure outcomes of their healthcare services that are being delivered. And over half of them said they don't have a critical mass of nurses that are prepared in their healthcare system to deliver evidence-based practice. So there's a lot of implications from this data. The implications are that these chief nurses, they have to have the knowledge and skills in evidence-based practice. 
they have to take value in the fact that evidence-based practice improves quality, safety, decreased healthcare costs, and they have to be able to put forward evidence to their CEOs and their CFOs that with EBP, they can improve quality of care as well as decrease costs. Because if we don't have our nurse leaders and managers on board with evidence-based practice and investing in it, it is not gonna happen consistently throughout the organization. So we have a lot of opportunity in front of us, Fiona, to work with that group, the nurse leaders and managers throughout healthcare systems. You make a great point. It certainly seems important to have the leaders in nursing embrace evidence-based practice so that it filters down throughout the institution. Now let's turn to our colleagues around the world with a question. What are the key strategies for building an evidence-based practice culture and environment? So you've talked about the role of leadership and the role of a, a culture of evidence-based practice, but what competencies do you think are important for nurses and advanced practice nurses to bring to the table in evidence-based practice? We never had established research-based competencies for evidence-based practice for point-of-care clinicians as well as advanced practice nurses. We now have them, so I'm really happy about that. Our team actually developed a set of research-based competencies for practicing nurses and for APNs. My advice in terms of using those competencies, and they were published in Worldviews on Evidence-Based Nursing last year, would be for hospitals and healthcare systems to put those out there as an expectation that they really do expect their clinicians, their advanced practice nurses, to have these EBP competencies. And that, again, if they don't have them to invest in different strategies to give these people the skills to meet those competencies. When every nurse and every advanced practice nurse meets those competencies daily in their practices, we're gonna see a big shift in quality, in safety, and decreased costs for our healthcare system. Thank you for clarifying that. You, along with other authors, have reported that nurses believe in the value of evidence-based practice, yet the reported implementation of EBP remains well below the Institute of Medicine's goal of having 90% of all clinical decisions based in evidence by the year 2020. What methods would you suggest to support the translation and implementation of evidence, particularly by the nurse at the point of care? First of all, nurses cannot do what they haven't learned. They don't have the skills to do it. We have to remember in the United States, there are a lot of the academic programs that teach nurses at the bachelor's and master's level the rigorous process of how to do research versus 
take an evidence-based approach to care. That is slowing down the evidence-based practice movement in the United States right now. So again, if nurses have never learned the seven-step EBP process, if they don't live in a culture that ignites a spirit of questioning, if they don't know how to form PICO questions, search for the evidence in the most expeditious way, if they don't know how to critically, rapidly appraise evidence and synthesize it, put it together, to say this body of evidence indicates that we need to make a practice change here. If they don't know those seven steps, they're not gonna be able to implement it. And then on top of that, even if they know the seven steps of VBP, if there are a lot of barriers in the system, because barriers are alive and well in our healthcare systems throughout the world. If you look at what nurses say about what prevents them from implementing evidence-based practice at the bedside, they most commonly cite time, and that's an issue because of the way they've been taught. If we teach EBP the way it's supposed to be taught, Nurses and other clinicians believe we can integrate this in our practices every day. Organizational culture and politics are other big barriers. For instance, a lot of people, when they suggest that a practice change be made based on evidence, they are told, no, no, we don't do it that way here. So we have that, that philosophy that exists in many institutions that we have to break down. You've got to be open to changing things based on the best evidence. So again, we have to equip people with the skills that they need, and we've got to remove these big barriers that continue to persist in so many healthcare systems. These are excellent strategies that people can take back to their own institutions. Thank you. Now let's turn to our colleagues around the world with a question. What are the barriers and facilitators to evidence-based practice in your hospitals and healthcare systems? You speak extensively about evidence-based practice mentors being important. We know that mentors should have experience in both the knowledge and implementation of evidence-based practice, but what other factors do you think are important for a mentor to possess? So first of all, EBP mentors are the key piece of our ARC evidence-based practice model. We have a model for implementing and sustaining evidence-based practice throughout a healthcare system. We have worked with several healthcare systems throughout the United States and globe on how to develop EBP mentors as part of that model. We've shown through multiple studies in healthcare systems who adopt this ARC model and create a cadre of evidence-based practice mentors, 
Clinicians' beliefs about evidence-based practice go up, they implement evidence-based care more, and there are wonderful outcomes as a result of that. Increased job satisfaction, decreased turnover rates, and most importantly, improved patient outcomes. Being an evidence-based practice mentor means this. It means you have wonderful skills in the seven-step EBP process and that you are able to turn around and teach and mentors other into how to develop those skills. But as a mentor, you also have to have knowledge and skills in individual behavior change because this is a change in behavior for a lot of practicing clinicians. And you ha also have to have skills in organizational change because of the barriers that exist in so many organizations. And you need to know how to overcome those barriers in working with others. Let's return to our audience for another question. What role should nurse leaders have in facilitating and sustaining evidence-based practice in their organizations? In your study on the state of evidence-based practice in U.S. nurses, you report on a negative correlation between years of clinical practice as it relates to the importance of or interest in gaining new skills and knowledge related to evidence-based practice. With an aging workforce, how do we address this, particularly given that so many of these seasoned nurses will have an influence on the development of newer staff? It's an excellent question. The average age of a nurse in the United States is 47 years of age. So Fiona, they didn't grow up to learn the skills in EBP, because when you think about that, 15, 20 years ago, we were still focused on research utilization, and people really were learning the process of how to do research at the bachelor's, at the master's level. If the older nurses, or I should say more mature nurses, don't have the skills in the EBP, they need to gain them. But they first have to see what's in it for them. Most people don't change just because they're told you've got to practice a different way now. When most people change is when crisis happens or their emotions are raised. So if I was working with a more mature nurse who was never brought up in EBP, I'd start to talk about stories to raise their emotions. For instance, if your child was in a motor vehicle accident and he or she was found in a pediatric intensive care unit, wouldn't you want the physicians and nurses caring for your child to deliver the best evidence-based care so your child could survive? Absolutely. Well, I don't think anybody would say, no, I don't want that. So. Those types of questions to start motivating people to think a little bit more about the way they practice is very important. And then you've got to give these people the skills. And it's more than just them attending a lecture 
or a one-day workshop because we know education, didactic lectures alone, often don't change behavior. They need opportunities to put what they're learning into practice. And the best way to do that is with an evidence-based practice mentor who, when they stumble, can pick them up and say, it's okay, so you stumbled. Let me show you how we can move this forward. So again, it's gonna take comprehensive approaches to both individuals, investments in infrastructure and culture in order for this to sustain. Thank you so much for being such a great visionary and such a, a leader and pioneer in nursing. As clinicians in an academic medical center, my colleagues and I participate in the education and training of future staff nurses. What changes would you recommend to existing undergraduate nursing curricula to ensure that new graduates are ready to use evidence-based practice? The first thing that I need to point out is that faculty cannot teach what they themselves don't know. We have so many wonderful faculty across the United States who are PhD prepared. So they were prepared to be rigorous researchers, but they truly never learned the skills and the seven steps of the evidence-based practice. Therefore, they continued to teach students the rigorous process of how to do research instead of how do I use the seven steps of the evidence-based practice to deliver the best care to my patients to produce the best outcomes. We also have a lot of confusion about this in doctor of nursing practice programs throughout the United States. We have got to be very clear that PhD programs prepare rigorous researchers to generate the evidence for us to use in practice. Doctor of Nursing practice students should be getting educated to be the best translators of research evidence into practice in a timely way. That is how the AACN first envisioned that degree. It's for these DNPs to be the best translators of the evidence into practice to improve care and outcomes. So we've got to focus on the faculty in all these universities and colleges throughout the country and really help them to see maybe they don't have the skills that they believe they do. They're great researchers, but they need to teach EBP, particularly for our bachelors, our masters, and our DNP students. If we produce DNP graduates who are intended by those programs to be many researchers, it's likely the quality of evidence may be jeopardized because those folks haven't had all the rigorous education and courses that our PhD students get. So this is a major stumbling block to the advancement of evidence-based practice. 
that we really have to concentrate on refining into the future. And I truly hope that those involved in research out there in academia and also in clinical institutions will benefit from what you've said and build on their skills of evidence-based practice. Your cognitive behavioral skills building intervention entitled Creating Opportunities for Personal Empowerment or COPE has been described in the literature as an example of implementing the best evidence in mental health treatment of adolescents. Would you please share with our audience some highlights of this program? You bet. So it's a researcher's dream to create an evidence-based program and actually have people use it in the real world to improve outcomes. And for the last 25 years of my career, I've been developing an evidence-based cognitive behavioral, what I call skills building program for children and adolescents. And I'm a psych mental health NP as well as a pediatric nurse practitioner. We know cognitive behavior therapy is the best evidence-based treatment for depression and anxiety. Yet so few children receive it because we don't have enough mental health providers out there. I often said the concepts in cognitive behavior therapy, those are cognitive reappraisal skills, they are coping skills, they're life skills, problem solving skills that we should equip every child and adolescent with. So I took the key concepts from cognitive behavior therapy and I put them into a reproducible, manualized program that can be delivered by teachers, by nurse practitioners, nurses, and other clinicians. I was funded by the National Institute of Nursing Research to test this healthy lifestyle CBT program with high school teenagers. And what we found through our program is the students who received this 15 session healthy lifestyle CBT based program, they engaged in healthier behaviors. They had less depression. The teens with severe depression at the beginning of the study no longer had depression 12 months after the program. They had better social skills, better academic performance, better grades, and less overweight and obesity 12 months after the intervention. So we have also taken those seven cognitive behavior skills building sessions and we deliver those to children and teens who are depressed and anxious with tremendous outcomes. We now have 14 studies that show this cognitive behavior skills building intervention that can be easily delivered to children and teens because it's structured and it's manualized. We can reach so many children and teens with this now. And sadly, one out of four children and teens have a mental health problem, yet less than 25% get any treatment. 
Think about all the children and teens who are hospitalized in children's hospitals. They have chronic conditions, but depression and anxiety are often comorbid with those chronic conditions. We've got to use hospitalization as a window of opportunity to also deal with the tremendous stress and anxiety that our children and teens are experiencing. That's very important information that my colleagues and I will be able to use. Thank you for all your thoughtful answers. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience today? I would. And Fiona, a key message I want to leave people with is nothing happens unless first a dream. And I know that sounds warm and fuzzy, but we have to know where we're going first or else we're going to end up someplace else. You, when you build and sustain an evidence-based practice infrastructure, there first has to be a team that comes together with an exciting team vision. Because truly, if you can't create a level of excitement and enthusiasm for EBP in the organization, it's really going to die. Just like stress is contagious, so is enthusiasm. And I really want people out there to answer the following two questions, because these are very key. I always ask people, what would you do and what would your team do in the next three, five, seven years if you know you couldn't fail? Because again, people have to catch a dream together. They have to catch a vision of where they're going to go. If people keep their dreams bigger than their fears, bigger than uncertainty, they're going to keep making progress. I always encourage people to write down their dreams and put a date on them and put them in front of your mirror where you get up every day and you look at them and you see them so you can keep making progress toward those. And the second big question is, when you go back to take care of your patients, what is the smallest evidence-based practice change that you can make that'll have the biggest impact, positive impact on outcomes. Look at sudden infant death syndrome and how it's declined across the United States from simply keeping babies on their backs. There's so many low hanging fruit things that we could be doing, but we gotta have the team dream we got to believe in the dream, and then we got to persist through the character builders because there will be many character builders along the journey until those dreams come to fruition. Those are truly inspiring words. Thank you so much for joining us today. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.